All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we will uh, start off this morning. Glad that you are here and have joined us for worship. Good to see all of you guys. Don't forget, Tuesday night we'll be up here at 630 uh, for our Christmas Eve service. Always one of my favorite services of the year. Uh, it's a good chance to, uh, to see everyone, just kind of enjoy each other in the midst of the uh, crazy holidays. If you're anything, uh, if your family's anything like my family, sometimes Christmas can be a little stressful, okay? And sometimes there's a lot of sitting on your hands and biting your tongue. Uh, just me? Okay, I see how it is. Uh, yeah, so it's a good chance to come on, on Christmas Eve and, and worship. And it's just a beautiful time together as a family, and so I think you'll enjoy it. It'll be 6.30 here uh, on Tuesday night, so hope to see you all here. We'll be in John chapter 1. We're uh, in the middle of a series, actually ending it today, called The Incarnation Matters, where we're talking about the incarnation, uh, God becoming man, and Jesus this, this God in the manger uh, as we enter into this uh, time of worship during the Christmas season. A.W. Tozer, uh, who, who wrote a lot on the Christian faith, once said that what you think about when you think about God, uh, kind of your gut, visceral, immediate reaction when you hear the word God, what you think about, what comes to mind, is the most important thing about you. Uh, will determine a whole lot of who you are and how you relate to God and how you relate to other people. You could say it like this, perhaps. Your love for God will never outrun your picture of him. Does that make sense? Your love for God is never going to outrun your picture of him. So if God for you, if, if what you think of when you think of God, if your picture of God, your, your kind of mental image of God is the overbearing father figure that perhaps you grew up with, who's always a little bit angry at you, who's always a little bit disappointed at you, who's always kind of distant, you're probably not going to find the ability to, to create much love towards that deity. At best, there'll be this kind of white-knuckled obedience. Um, or perhaps you are, uh, your picture of God comes from uh, another kind of person in your life, another place in your life where you could do nothing wrong and you got everything that you ever wanted and never heard the word no, right? And so this is how God is to you. He's this kind of cosmic vending machine to you. He just exists to affirm you as you are um, with no uh, other word beyond you are awesome. I'm so impressed with myself that I made you and that you turn out this way. I don't know if you... Uh, keep up with this sort of thing, but um, not too long ago, a teenager got a 10 years probation um, in a drunk driving case, and they called it, part of the defense was he had affluenza because he was so rich, he never heard the word no. Now, beyond what you think about kind of that case, I mean, that is just some people's experience, right? They've never heard the word no. Surely you've met this person, right? That's just not, what is this? Are you speaking a different language at this point, right? And some people, they kind of grow up with this kind of picture of God. God is just this all-affirming kind of deity, whatever it is you are, God is for. Um, and for others, God is this kind of distant, angry kind of person. But your love for God is never going to outrun your picture of God. And I do believe that uh, the biggest threat to our faith, the, the biggest threat to being Christians, um, is not atheism. I'm not as worried that you're not going to believe in God. Statistically, just about everybody believes in God. It's very rare for someone to really not believe in God. I mean, the, the statistics don't lie on this. The biggest threat, I think, to Christianity is not atheism, it's idolatry. It's what kind of God do you believe in? Who is your God? What does he like? What does he want or not want? What does he want you to do or not want you to do? It's idolatry, not, not atheism. Who is God? I think we, most people would agree that God exists. Um, the rub really happens um, when you ask what, what this God who exists is like. What kind of God is he? Who is he? Um, in fact, this is why I don't, necessarily prefer the term God. God is this kind of three-letter word that means very little anymore. Um, 
the Christian God is not the Muslim God and is not the Jewish God. And, and, and for all the kind of semantics you want to do to, to kind of reinforce peace among groups, um, there are certain things you can't just gloss over. Um, the God revealed in Christianity is much a different picture of God than you get in, in other kind of world religions. Um, in fact, I think you'll see this if you kind of pay attention. When people talk about God to each other without defining God, without, without being specific about who God is, what he's like, you'll see they often talk past each other. It's a very confusing conversation. God is not very specific. Um, it's kind of this kind of vague word that's lost all meaning. In most of my conversations with atheists, okay, they describe the kind of God that they have come to reject. By the end of it, I'm able to usually say, I would reject that kind of God as well. I mean, the God that you describe is not the God that I worship. This is not the God that I know. This is not the God that's been revealed to me at all. Let me get specific about who God is and what God means um, to us here. And here I think we get to one of the uh, most dramatic and important implications of the Christmas season, which is that God has revealed himself. When we see this, this Christ child in the manger, we see God's revelation of himself to the world. I think it's one of the biggest implications of the incarnation of the Christmas season. And so we'll start off um, in John chapter 1 this morning. I want to show this to you in the scriptures and then maybe unpack a few of the implications. John 1, we'll pick it up in verse 1 and read through verse 18. This is kind of our, our text for the series um, as we think about the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, with this title for Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, verse 12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you remember this phrase I gave you to, to kind of capture the Christmas season, the Son of God, by nature, eternal Son of God became a human being so that humans might become sons and daughters of God. All who, who received him, who believed in his name, get the right, the privilege to be children. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. He was incarnate. He took on human nature and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side, the Word, the Son, he has made him known. So in verse 14, here you get this kind of classic statement about the incarnation. The word, the eternal God, became flesh, took on human nature. And John says he dwelt among us. This, this word for dwelt um, is the, the word for tabernacle. That's a reference back to the Old Testament when God and his people were in the, the wilderness. And God um, had this kind of portable tent that his glory went and dealt, uh, dwelt in um, as they traveled along throughout the wilderness. And this is how he mediated himself to them. This is how they were able to experience God. This is how he reveals himself to them. He, he kind of tabernacles among them. It would become the temple where you can go and meet with God, where you can go and see God, where you can go and experience God. In Christ, in this, this child, in, in, in the manger, you have God, full God, eternal God, tabernacling with humanity, eternally, becoming human, coming close to us, dwelling with us, dwelling among us. 
later in John's letters um, to the church at Ephesus, he'll say, we, we were able to see God and touch God and talk to God. Life, the life that created all things was right there in front of us. He was born into the world in front of us. And we've seen his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, this grace and truth is also interesting. This is another reference um, back to this, this time period in the wilderness. Um, these two words are often found in the Old Testament together to describe God's character. Um, in fact, you'll see this in uh, Psalm 86, 15, which I'll read for you. Just a good example. You, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, this grace and truth, truth here has more the sense of constantness of abidingness. Um, so this is actually what's in the, the Hebrew in, in Psalm 86. You're abounding in steadfast love, grace in the Greek, and faithfulness, which would be truth here um, in John 1. The fact that God um, loves his creatures um, as, as, uh, as much as, as, as anyone could kind of imagine this kind of self-sacrificial love, and that it's constant from eternity. This is simply who God is. When you're describing God's character, he's full of, of mercy and grace, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, we have seen this now um, from God. We've seen this in the Christ child. We've seen who God is. He's been revealed to us. In fact, in verse 18, which is a very important um, verse here in John 1, John says that it's a very bold statement. He says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. And he's not just talking about kind of seeing like if you were able to draw a picture, like if you got that card playing um, like a game at Christmas, right? That'd be a really hard Pictionary one to draw because no one's ever seen God. Um, seeing is to, to see is to know, to see is to believe. He, he parallels these worlds. No one's seen him, but now he's been made known. No one's known God. No one's seen God. Um, but now in Christ, now in this baby, who will become a little boy, who will become a man, who will die on a cross. Now we've seen up close and in person what God is like. God has been defined for us. We have seen God. He's been revealed to us. Now, there are some characters in the Old Testament who might disagree with this statement. Um, I'm thinking of Moses, okay? The, the Old Testament scriptures say that Moses spoke to God face to face. Moses had this very close relationship to God. Um, in fact, though, if you, you read the stories closely, the most Moses ever gets to see of God is his... Uh, your ESV Bible would put it his backside, okay? His, his, his buttocks, his bottom, um, in a, a conversation that Moses has with God, he says, I want to see you. God says, you can't see me. It's not going to go well for you. And they kind of talk to each other. And God says, okay, compromise. And he turns around and shows him his backside. It's the first recorded mooning in all of history. Okay. Who knew immature kids are just imitating God? Okay. This is a, a characteristic of God. He, uh, there's actually, this is, there's, a, there's ancient icons of a God-like figure that you'd imagine like God creating turned around and the cloak is kind of opened up so you can see the, the, the bottom there. Uh, so this is an uh, interesting part in the scriptures. I'm sure you probably never heard a sermon on this. Um, so Moses has seen at least a portion of God, right? But it's, it's kind of the statement of, of comparison. Compared to now what we've experienced in Christ, no one's seen God. The best we've seen is as much as someone's backside might tell you about what their face looks like, right? It's not very specific. It's not um, a very clear picture of what someone is like, of, of who they are. But now in Christ, that's been revealed to us. Um, this is an interesting feature of, of Christian faith, that God is uh, a revealed thing, uh, a revealed being to us. It's not common sense. You don't arrive at, at God by looking at the stars. You arrive at God by looking at a manger, you, you, you don't get to reason your way to God. You get to receive a revelation of God. He comes into the world. He invades the world and says, this is who I am. This is not God, who God is. His identity is not a 
piece of public information. It's a revealed truth through the person uh, and through the life of Christ. And so um, Christmas is this great time to answer the question, who is God? What is he like? What does he look like? Um, And Christmas answers this question not with attributes, but with a person. God is not this list of five attributes. God is this man, this baby, this boy, this teacher. This is who God looks like, this historical Jewish man. It pierces through all of our vague discussions about God. And it's very bad news for every picture of God that doesn't have Christ at its center. And this is, again, where I think Tozer's quote comes in um, and is so important. What you think about when you think about God is such a drastically important thing about your life, about your heart, about your prayer life. Um, Who is God? What's he like? So often, many of us, I think, bring in pictures of God from outside of Jesus. And at best, we try to reconcile them with the picture of God we get in Jesus. We kind of mesh them together. But, but we have a trouble fully trusting the picture we get in the person of Christ. In fact, if you were to, I think, do a kind of history of religions, uh, what you find is most pictures of God fall into one of two categories. God is either small and nasty or big and distant and aloof. So God is perhaps like the Greek gods of old, who um, Zeus, Hercules, they were very involved in human, everyday, day-to-day kind of stuff, but they were kind of mean people. They were kind of nasty, right? You didn't want to slight them. You didn't want to offend them because they would cut you. It'd go really bad for you really quickly. Or God is far, far off, not concerned at all with the world or with you. If he is concerned, it's kind of one of kind of disappointment and of, of giving up, um, this was just a failed mistake, and I've turned my back on it all. God's the, the clockmaker who starts it and then steps back and only intervenes in, in kind of drastic ways. Unfortunately, that's somehow, uh, sometimes how Christmas is interpreted, right? Look at God doing a miracle, which is so unusual for God. He doesn't normally interact in our world. That's not the picture of God that you get in the scriptures. God's not far away and aloof, I'm rarely interacting with the world. But God is also not interacting day to day with a mean streak. Like the, the gods of Zeus and Hercules who would, would strike you down with a lightning bolt for, for looking at them the wrong way. The picture you get of God in Jesus is a much different picture. Um, and I think, again, this is one of the biggest implications of the incarnation. Elton Trueblood, um, to give you, I'll give you a handful of quotes this morning which I think are, are, are so important. Elton Trueblood said this. He said, The historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ, so the idea that Jesus is God, does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It's far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus. Sometimes we we think of Jesus being God, and and we come to it with a preconceived notion of what God's like, right? We've got these three omnis, or we've got these different attributes. This is what God's like, and we come and go, oh, look, this man is also God, so he must have these same characteristics. In fact, though, the, the incarnation should reverse that process, that thinking in our minds. No one's seen God, but now he's been made known. The truth of the incarnation is that God is actually like Jesus, When you see Jesus, when you see what he likes, when you see what he doesn't like, when you see how he reacts to certain situations, when you see what he wants and doesn't want, you're seeing the heart, the very character, the very nature of God. There was a a story told of a boy who went to Sunday school on his own. His parents weren't strong believers. And after a few weeks of going to Sunday school, the the parents called the boy into the living room and said, what do you think? What are you thinking of all these kind of things you're hearing, what you're being taught? And the boy responded, well, I like this Jesus guy. I'm not yet sure about his father. Okay, his, his father sounds kind of mean, right? His father wanted to kill me. He stepped in and saved me, right? There's kind of the separation. 
we haven't fully reconciled this um, kind of Trinitarian vocabulary, this Trinitarian understanding that God is Christ. The Son reveals perfectly the Father. Michael Ramsey puts it like this, um, God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. To play off a phrase from the book of James, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God is Christ-like. God is like Jesus, the Jesus revealed in the Gospels. And in him there's not a trace of anything that's not like the Jesus revealed in the Gospels. No one's ever seen God, John says, but now he's been made known through the incarnation, through God becoming a human. Throughout the Gospel of John, um, this is a constant theme in Jesus' uh, ministry, and his, on his lips and his teachings. He'll multiple times come to people, teachers of the law, scholars of religion, and say, you do not know my father. I'm doing that all, the, this all morning. He'll say, you don't know my father. He'll say, what do you mean we don't know the father? Of course we know the father. We've studied scriptures longer than you've been alive. And we know this Old Testament inside and outside, backwards and forwards. And he'll say, you don't know me, and you don't know the Father. This is not something you can just come to on your own. This is God in the flesh revealing him to you. Um, his disciples will ask him before he dies, will you show us the Father? And kind of frustrated, he says, have you seen me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know who God is. God is, is like me. God is Christ-like in him. There is no Christ-likeness at all. If you were to ask me what is the one kind of most foundational truth that's, that's kind of transformed my understanding of God and the faith and how I read scriptures and all those things combined, it would be this concept. It would be slowly but surely learning to, to, to be critical of every picture I have of God that doesn't match up with the Jesus that I see in the four Gospels. To be critical of every theological system I've inherited, to be critical of every kind of axiom I've adopted that doesn't match up with this picture, this revelation of Christ. Um, in fact, I think if you had the time and the lack of life, you could go back in, in my sermons, um, chronicled online and see over the years the trajectory that's, that's been taken. The more and more I've been able to adopt this truth into my theology um, as it's played out over and over again. Um, so God is like Christ. The definitive revelation of God comes through this Christmas act, the act of the incarnation. And we get a picture of what God's like. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 1. <coughs> As we continue to, to explore this idea, what is God like? If we can agree that Jesus reveals the Father, what is the content of that revelation? Hebrews chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 1. The author of Hebrews says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So again, we're going to get this contrast in the, the past, God has spoken to his people. So this is not to say that God has not revealed himself before Christ or stopped revealing himself outside of Christ. Simply to say that all revelations point to Christ. Um, none contradict Christ. If they do contradict, you have not understood it correctly. God has been fully revealed in Christ. But God here is pictured as a communicator of sorts, wanting to, to communicate who he is to his creation. This is who I am. And he's spoken many different ways through lots and lots of different people. But now, in the last days, verse 2, in the time of the promises being fulfilled in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The one who created all things, the one who is over all things. He, verse 3, this is very important, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Son is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God 
holding a megaphone saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is not a 98% copy of what I'm like. This is not 75% of my character. Jesus is an exact imprint of my nature. If you want to know what the Father's like, if you want to know what God is like, look at the life, look at the words, look at the teaching, look at the ministry of the Son. Herbert McCabe says the story of Jesus, the, the life, the work, the person of Jesus, the story of Jesus is nothing other than the triune life of God projected onto history. God revealing himself to his creation. And what you see in that revelation is you see God being a God who sacrificially loves. You see a God who desires nothing but the best for his creation at all times. You see a God who's eternally for and with his creation. You see a God who loves his enemies, who's patient with those who don't understand. You see a God who weeps over those who are far away. You see a God who pursues and pursues and pursues. And and when you see Christ doing that, pursuing, you're seeing, again, a picture of the eternal life of the Trinity, constantly with a heart toward its creation, reaching out in love, hoping for redemption and salvation. There's no hidden God behind Christ. Christ reveals God to us, and he reveals God to us as, as the word might use, cruciform, the shape of a cross, enemy-loving, patient, long-bearing, self-sacrificial. The cross becomes then the place where we see God most fully revealed. The cross is not a mistake in Jesus' life. In the sense of, of the cross was an accident, right? The cross was just one thing God had to unfortunately do in the course of saving humanity. Instead, the cross is actually the, the place where you most fully see the inner workings of the Trinity, where you most fully see God's heart towards creation. It's a place where he's most fully revealed. This is who God's been from eternity, now shown to us on the cross, as he dies for his enemies. As he, in fact, lets his enemies, his own creation, kill him, so that they might be forgiven, loved, adopted. This is not out of the way for God. This is right on the path for God. This is the life of the Trinity fully expressed. This is why it's so important to keep intact these kind of Trinitarian ideas, to understand that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So often we separate out the Trinity, and and we have a hard time really imagining Jesus being one with God the Father, that unity in the Trinity. And so we do, we we understand the cross in weird ways. Um, we, We kind of separate it out here. And so on the cross, again, like the little boy in the Sunday school, sometimes we imagine God the Father being this kind of very angry, vicious person, kind of um, beating up people I would describe as like cosmic child abuse, right? Scapegoating Jesus so that others can be forgiven. And and, and when you do that, you've kind of horribly misunderstood the point of the cross. You've kind of horribly misunderstood that it was the love of God that sent the Son. That God did not need to be reconciled to the world as if he needed a heart change somehow. It was the world that needed to be reconciled to God. On the cross, God himself is suffering for creation. He himself is taking on the punishment, expressing his heart of love um, for his people. This is the clearest revelation of of who God is, of his nature. Um, Again, though, we, we, we kind of axiomatically accept other pictures of God. 
that I think have to continually and over and over again be critiqued by the person and life of Jesus. Um, one that we've, we've talked about in the past is this idea that I get thrown out sometimes that God can't be in the presence of sin. Seems like a kind of basic axiomatic thing. Seems like it makes sense. God can't be in the presence of sin. Sometimes you'll even find people who build their whole kind of eternal framework on this, this idea, right? Why do you have to be washed pure? Why can't God just forgive you? Well, because he can't stand you if you're sinful, right? It's kind of two things that don't go together. You will never enter into his presence if you're sinful. God can't be in the presence of sin. However, when you run that up again to the picture of God in Christ in the Gospels, it just doesn't match. Christ in the Gospels, Jesus is continually going towards sin. It's continually entering into sin. It's continually found in the place of outcasts and sinners in the dirtiest, darkest, smelliest, nastiest places. This is where he is to be found. These are who his friends are. This is where he celebrates and enjoys life throughout the Gospels. The picture you would get would instead be not one of God not being able to be in the presence of sin, but sin not being able to be in the presence of God. You see a, a, a sinful woman in Jesus' presence either leaves on her own volition or is transformed by the contagious holiness and love of Christ. It's never that Christ turns his back on her and walks away from her. It's that she's either transformed or, or she usually ends up walking away. Jesus reverses this common idea of uh, impurity being something that gets transferred like a sickness. And so in the ancient days, if you touch someone who's impure, you would become impure. Um, that impurity, that darkness, that sin um, was contagious. Jesus, though, reverses this around. His holiness is contagious. Um, his cleanliness is contagious. His love is contagious. He touches someone who's impure or is touched by someone who's impure. And instead of him becoming impure, they become clean. He kind of switches the cycle the other way. He pursues, he pursues, he pursues. This is the life of the Trinity projected onto um, history for us to see. Um, this is what God is like. God is, in the person of Christ, good news beyond our wildest dreams. The gospel is good news. If the gospel ever starts to be bad news to any, any people group at any time, you can be sure that you've somehow missed the full heart of the gospel which is good news. It's good news to all men, peace on the earth. Um, God is fully revealed in Jesus, and he's revealed as one who, who loves. He's revealed as one who is patient. He's revealed as one who's indeed full of grace and truth, full of an eternal, abounding love um, for his people. Sometimes, again, we, we picture the atonement. I've heard this analogy used as God the Father pointing a gun at our head. This is the punishment for sin. And what you see is the sun jumping in front of the gun, taking the bullet for us, right? Again, though, you've, you've, kind, of, you've kind of separated the Trinity in a way that you're not allowed to as a Christian. Um, God's heart is not one of anger and one of bloodthirst murder um, on the cross. On the cross, God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's heart is one of love and forgiveness and mercy. He prays, Father, forgive them. And in so many ways, we, I think can't accept the radical goodness of who God is presented to us in Christ and in the, in the Trinity. And we have to think over and over and over again that there's, there's got to be some dark side to God. There's got to be some dark streak to God. It can't really be this good that God is really like Jesus. And so we take other pictures of God, we take other revelations of God, and in, in various ways we try to mesh them together, we try to put them up against each other, and kind of hold out for more in God. One way that we do this, a, a real popular way, is with um, Jesus himself, and in terms of his first coming and second coming. 
Um, so I don't know if you've kind of seen this. It's a pretty popular, pretty common thing around um, groups of Christians. Jesus came during his first coming as meek and mild, but he'll come in his second coming with blood and swords, right? I mean, it's, it's going to go down. He's, he came first lowly, second time he comes, he's coming in glory. He's coming as the true king, right? Um, what you miss here is, is so many things. What you miss is the glory of God in the Gospels is exactly his death, right? I mean, this is all throughout the book of John. What we would imagine God's glory would be, would be this power over, this coercive kind of killing and forcing others to serve us as slaves. God's glory, though, looks like a young Jewish man dying on the cross, forgiving his enemies. But we imagine that there's some kind of big, just, just kind of, kind of big, Fissure that's going to take place in God's character and Jesus' character when he, he returns. And so we turn to the book of Revelation and we find lots of violent imagery in the book of Revelation. Jesus has swords. Jesus is um, covered in blood. Um, one person has described him as a, a kind of like a prized cage fighter in the book of Revelation um, who's come to make people bow or to, to cut their heads off. This is, this is the picture that people see in the book of Jesus. And so they said, well, you can't just take this picture of cruciform love in the Gospels You've got to understand kind of these both sides to Jesus and, and by corollary, these both sides to God as well. Um, in fact, it was not too long ago that there was a uh, kind of an eruption on the, the Internet world, on the blog world, which if you're not a part of the Christian blog world, um, don't be. OK, you're not you're not missing out on much. I mean, I would say subscribe to my blog. Um, but other than that, um, there's not a whole lot out there for you. Uh, but there's this, this big kind of controversy over whether Jesus was a pacifist or not. Um, and kind of the, the debate focused around the book of Revelation. It seems like an axiom, I think, to most people. I, I can't imagine reading the Gospels and not seeing this kind of large theme of nonviolence in the Gospels. Jesus teaches nonviolence. He embodies nonviolence. It seems to be a constant theme throughout. Now, there are Christians who would deny this. Gandhi's famous, I think, for saying, um, I think it's Gandhi for saying, the only one who can't, the only people who can't see that Christ is nonviolent are Christians themselves, <laughs> right, who want to have these crusades and go do what they want to do. Anybody else just objectively read the Gospels and go, this was a very peaceful guy. This was a guy who didn't want anyone to fight and didn't want, wasn't willing himself to fight. You know, he could call down angels, those kind of things. But in Revelation, again, Jesus comes back. There's swords. There's bloods. He's stomping on people, apparently, like one stomps on grapes to produce wine. And the, the wine is their blood pouring out. I mean, it's a, it's a very violent book. No, no one would deny that at all, right? Um, again, so, so people kind of put these pictures together and say, well... So there's apparently this very violent, very mean streak to God where he comes. And if you're his enemy, he doesn't die for you. He kills you harshly, quickly, wrathfully. Um, again, though, I mean, we're so eager to do this that we miss out on all these. I mean, in the book of Revelation, this is a much longer um, discussion than we have time for this morning. There's all these clear clues in the book of Revelation that it's not meant to be read in that way. I mean, it's this violent imagery. The sword, for instance, that Jesus comes with in the book of Revelation is coming out of his mouth. I don't know if you ever tried to fight someone with a sword out of your mouth. You can go home, try it, just bring your teeth right there. It's a very ineffective way of killing people. Um, it's really not the classic warrior stance, okay? It's, it's, I mean, clear symbolism. The sword is the word of the gospel coming out. The gospel of nonviolent enemy love. The gospel of dying for my enemies. Praying, even as they kill me, forgive them. Don't hurt them, forgive them. Don't punish them, forgive them. Jesus is covered in blood. There's lots of clues in Revelation. This is actually his own blood. This is the blood of his sacrifice. He's covered in blood before the fights even start. He shows up in blood. It's not the blood of his enemies. They're not these two schizophrenic Jesus where he comes and it's this big psych out in his first revelation, his first coming. His second coming is completely different. No, we can fully trust the picture of God we get in Jesus in the four Gospels. 
This is the life of the Trinity. This is who God is like eternally. He's always been like this. He always will be like this. This is why we say um, with 1 John that God is love. Again, it's so important to keep these, these Trinitarian concepts because otherwise certain, certain things don't make sense and, and, and we're, we're very easily taken off track in certain concepts. Um, God is love because he's triune. For all of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, love requires a community, give and take, two persons. God is three persons, trying God, Father, Son, and Spirit. For all of eternity, the Father's love the Son and love the Spirit. The Son's love the Father. The Son's love the Spirit. Um, there's been this, this give and take of, of self-sacrificial love for all of eternity. This is why God is love is an, a category beyond any other category for God in the Scriptures. God is not love in the same way he's wrath in the Scriptures. He's, he's never, never equated with being wrathful, eternally, inherently wrathful. God's wrath is a subset of his love. It's because he's so loving toward his creation that he gets upset when it is distorted. That he decides to intervene and to judge because it's gone wrong. It's this eternal life of love put on display for us in the person of Jesus, most fully revealed on the cross that you and I are invited into during the Christmas season to, to see and to witness and to, to start to critique our pictures of God that perhaps um, do not line up to the, the biblical revelation that we received in Christ. You, you can tell what your picture of God is. There's a few litmus tests. Um, one would perhaps be your prayer life. How often you pray and how you pray is a pretty good test of how you think about God. If you think God is very far off, very aloof, very distant, not too involved in the world, no surprise, you probably won't find yourself praying very much. Right? I mean, you probably only pray in really dramatic situations where you need a miracle, where you need God to do something he normally doesn't do, which is to step down and intervene in the world. God is, is far too big, far too far away, um, and, and, and far too um, busy with important things to worry about your credit card bill, or your kids, or, or this situation, or that situation. You can take care of it. You're a responsible adult, right? Or if God is kind of this mean vengeful, angry God who's always disappointed you, always full of shame um, in you. You'll find your prayers um, probably being very kind of like a, a child trying to seek their father's approval, right? Very um, shame-filled and, and um, just can't get over this fact, right, that God loves you. I, I mean, you would be, I think, surprised at how many people spend years in church and still have a hard time believing that God loves them. I mean, it's always just so basic that's not worth mentioning. Yet it's something that I, I think, if most of us are honest, on our darkest days, we still wonder with. We still struggle with. Because we line up God's love to our love for ourselves and, and to other people's love for ourselves. And again, we, we forget God is much bigger, much more eternal. He is love. The trying God. His heart doesn't change. There's no, there's no unchristlikeness here. And, and if, if we're not experiencing God's presence, it's not because God has turned his back on you. It's because you've turned your back on God. Christ never abandons the sinner. The sinner abandons him. Or is transformed, is, is caught with his love, with his holiness, with his light. Your prayer life, I think, is a, a, a great indicator of you know, the picture that you have of God. The way that you view him, the way that you interact with him, the way that you live. I'll end with a story um, from a, a scholar named T.F. Torrance, who uh, is a, just a remarkable theologian. Um, 
has dealt a lot with issues like this, incarnation, trinity, um, kind of the doctrine of God. Who really is he? Not just this vague, generic God, but who is the Christian God? He says this. He was a private army chaplain, uh, and in October 1944, he was involved in an uh, assault on his troops uh, in San Martino, Sogliano. Uh, he was a stretcher bearer during the fire there, and he came across a private, Private Phillips, who was 19 years old at the time, who was mortally injured. Uh, Torrance could tell he was about to die, so he kind of knelt down next to him to be with him during his final moments. And the last, he says, I'll never forget, the last words this private said to him as he was dying were, Padre, is God really like Jesus? And Torrance said, assured him that he was. There's no hidden side to God. There's no backside to God. There's no other God out there beyond the God we've seen in Jesus. He prayed with him. The man died. But Torrance said he was kind of shaken. He was bothered. He, and he wondered why, what it is in our preaching, what it is in the way we talk about God that makes it so hard for people to truly accept this. That makes people wonder what else is there beside the Christ we see in the Gospels. And then a few years later, he says he was at Aberdeen as a, a minister, and an elderly lady in his parish came up to him and, and asked him the same question. Is God really like Jesus? And he writes um, on these memories, saying that he's learned to assure them and both himself that God is indeed really like Jesus, that there's no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for you to fear, that to see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of Christ. We come to the Christmas season. We come and celebrate the incarnation, God becoming man. There's all these implications of that. We talked last week. It reveals to us what humanity is supposed to be like. This is what the image of God truly looks like. This is what the life that you and I were called to live truly looks like. And then as we look at the manger, we, we also see God. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to learn to see in the face of this crucified Jewish man the very face of God, the very heart, nature, very purpose, mission of who God is. One of the things it means to be a Christian is to learn that when we read John 8, when we read of a, a sinful woman caught in adultery, she's brought in, sins with the death penalty. In fact, we should probably read this as a kind of a younger girl, probably 14 or 15 years old, because of the way the, the Jewish ruling system worked back then. He's brought in. Jesus reacts to her. He reacts to her with gentleness and mercy. Do you remember this? He forgives her. He says, go and sin no more. I mean, what, what would it really mean? How would it transform our lives, our hearts, our worship, our prayer, if we really thought that in our darkest, deepest, nastiest moments, I mean, I'm not talking, you just got up and you smell a little bad and your hair's messed up and you're kind of a jerk to your family for a few minutes. I'm talking... Like the pit of shame where you think, I'm unlovable, I don't love myself, other people shouldn't love me, I don't deserve to live. That, that time where you've done something and you thought, I never thought I could ever get that far. I never thought I could ever be that person. I never thought I could ever do that. What would it mean if in that moment, not after you've cleaned yourself up, not after you've, you've kind of worked your way out of it, not after you've done things to make up for it, but in that moment, God's reaction to you is not one of shame disappointment, I told you so, you deserve what you're getting. But it's one of forgiveness, gentleness. What if he whispers to you quietly? What if he says, hey, let's not do this again, but, but I don't condemn you. Let's go. Let's get out of here. What if we can really trust the picture of God that we get in the manger, that we get at, at Christmas time?